I think the answers are usually in the people. They just need someone to help them draw them out. So it's a mixture of like telling people, hey, this is what I've done. Here's the mistakes that I've made. Don't make them again, ideally, but also trying to draw out what are they thinking and how are they approaching the business? Because ultimately that's what's going to like lead to longevity. The consultants will come and go. As much as I'd like to love work my clients forever, that's not going to happen. Today on the podcast, we have Tim Richardson. He is the founder of Fern Studios, a consultancy focused on reframing the way agency leaders think. Before that, he was a founding member of We Make Websites, a Shopify Plus agency that was acquired by Born Group in 2021. In his spare time, he hosts the podcast, Your Basket is Empty, and does a little angel investing as well. Me and Tim had a great conversation about agencies, about sales, about processes, working with different types of merchants, and selling based off of value. It's a really interesting conversation, especially with someone who has extensive experience in the e-commerce agency space. So yeah, man, I, I'm, I appreciate you joining the podcast and coming on. I know we've went back and forth with scheduling a bunch, but it's great to have you here, Tim. And I'll let you introduce yourself and let everyone know the company that you're currently, you currently founded, I believe. Why don't, why don't you kind of start it off? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate the, the scheduling that we went through, but we're here. We're here now. Just to rewind, I was at a Shopify Plus agency for like the last six years called We Make Websites. I was the commercial director there. We sold the company late last year and I took that as an opportunity to branch out and do my own thing. So I'm the founder mm -hmm. of a company called Fern Studios. It's a slightly meta concept, but it is an agency for agencies. So my experience is scaling and growing an agency from a sales and marketing and growth perspective. And I reckon that there's plenty of agencies that could use a bit of help with that. So that's what Fern Studios mm -hmm. does. Uh, and then uh, alongside that, I, I've got a podcast as well called Your Basket is Empty, where I sit down with interesting people, very similar to yourself in the like direct consumer and kind of agency space. So yeah, that's me. 2022 september that's where we're at cool hmm. how long were you at we make websites for so i started in 2016 and how i found it was i had moved to london so we were like headquartered in london although we had the new york offices we were just talking about it was my second stint in london so i spent some time in investment banking i was working for Citigroup and goldman sachs then quit everything started a record label failed that quite miserably and then went back to london for another stint the big smoke and someone had said there was a job board site here called Unicorn Hunt. And they said, go and check that out. And I kind of knew the agency world. I'd done a little bit of work in digital marketing agency. I knew it was that kind of cool intersection of like business, technology, and kind of like creative that I kind of liked. And there was a job. Yeah, I think it was like a project manager slash salesperson. That's what the job was. I thought that's weird at this Shopify agency. And I knew what Shopify was because I'd looked at explored it as the DTC channel for my record label, although we didn't use it. And I was going to apply for the job. And then I saw that that company was doing an event the next night. And I thought, I'm just going to chance it. So I linked in who the founders were, figured out who one of them were. And then I went to the event and basically accosted them at the event and said, Hey dude, I hear you're looking for somebody. That was a Wednesday and I had the job by the following Monday. And that was 2016. Nice. I kind of had a similar introduction into the e-commerce agency space because i started avix 2014 2015 but we were just making websites mm -hmm. right not e-commerce some of them were e-commerce most of them were just like brochure websites we just do any kind of website development wordpress and big commerce and shopify and magento and just any kind of anything we could get our hands on we weren't specific to shopify or e-commerce at all and then in 2018 it was at that point it was just me and like two other people right i went to a shopify event in new mm. york it wasn't a big event it was like a little talk i forgot mm. what it was called it was like shopify Partners yeah, event yeah. or something a few people were speaking i know someone from wonder wonder something i forgot the name of it they're a pretty big agency Wonderkind or Wonderkind, is that those guys? Maybe, I forgot the name of it, but they're pretty big. They do a lot of e-commerce. And Alex was there speaking from We Make yep. Websites. He was actually on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And I was just like, wow, this Shopify thing is <laughs> kind of cool. And I made the decision like that day to switch to just doing Shopify. Yep. Like from then on, we did not do anything but e-commerce. Yep. So it went from 
two people to now close to 50 yep. people, 45 people yep. since like late 2018. Definitely have like going to those events, seeing what's going on. The community was pretty interesting. It still is. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the main reasons why I started just shifting over to e-commerce and Shopify strictly because the community was so cool. And it just felt like there was something going on there and that it's growing. And I guess we all kind of made the right bet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there you go. We Make Websites has changed both of our lives, hopefully for the better. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I know on your website and what you kind of mentioned before is that your consultancy, Fern Studios, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Is your primary goal or your focus is on reframing the way agency leaders think. Can you tell me a little bit about what that reframing is? What's that the thought process that needs to change? And why do you think that needs to occur? Because I honestly, I'm an agency founder, so <laughs> yeah. love to How about that? take something yeah, away from exactly. this. I get a free set. I get a free consultancy exactly. session. This yeah, 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 yeah. It's a win for both sides. So firstly, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe they don't need reframing, but I suppose... I'd argue that the best kind of consulting is kind of that player coach kind of concept. And that I think that in some consultancy capacities, you want someone just to tell you what to do, right? It's like, right, do these three things and that's it. However, I think with the stuff that in an agency environment, because it's very relationship-based, the services selling is very relationship-based. It's very nuanced, particularly in the Shopify world. I think there's a lot of nuance that I think the answers are usually in the people. They just need someone to help them draw them out. So it's a mixture of like telling people, hey, this is what I've done. Here's the mistakes that I've made. Don't make them again, ideally, but also trying to draw out what are they thinking and how are they approaching the business? Because ultimately that's what's going to like lead to longevity. The consultants will come and go. As much as I'd like to love work my clients forever, that's not going to. It's not going to happen. So ideally, I'm instilling a way of thinking and a reframing the way you're thinking, which I think will put you in a better position in five years time. So that, that's the kind of idea behind the reframing and the rethinking and why I think it's important. But I mean, if you go like slightly deeper than that, to some degree, that's a bit of marketing fluff, let's be honest, right? There is some basis in that. And I'm passionate about the agency model. I think that's really at the core of it. I think it's a really, really interesting and challenging business model compared to say a product. I think the services business is super, super interesting and it can be really, really rewarding. But generally, I think maybe isn't done as efficiently and effectively as it can be. And I think having somebody that's kind of been there, done that before, it's a good foundation for some interesting conversations and hopefully some growth. Yeah, for sure. When it comes to the agency model, what do you feel? And I guess this doesn't apply to all agencies because every agency approaches certain things differently, like the sales process or their delivery process. But what do you feel is like the most broken thing about agencies or the agency model like what what's the biggest thing that you feel needs to be fixed a, a number of things and and i think also the one way i'm looking at this is like looking at opportunities as opposed to things being broken or challenges and stuff like that i think that's an interesting way it's just a positive slightly more positive mindset to take into so opportunities i think at the broad scale are not or avoiding the hamster wheel concept and that is Revenue headcount, revenue headcount, revenue headcount, and mm -hmm. when does it end? <laughs> so I would say that's probably one of the number one opportunities for an agency to try and avoid or tackle is how can you drive more revenue and more profit with less headcount? And that is a really, really hard one because there is such a, an acute appetite for more people as soon as you get more work. So how do you kind of like avoid it? One, any kind of retained revenue concept, I think in a services business is just gold, right? Like, and that's a classic thing. And there's loads of people that kind of talk about that. But I think optimizing that as much as you can and potentially moving to only a retained revenue model is an interesting potential differentiator. And I know there's some agencies out there that are kind of doing that. So that's one way. And that's kind of like a high level thing. Other opportunities that exist sort of on a more granular scale or sort of in the weeds are my sense is, and you're a good example of it, the, the story you told about the genesis of where you guys came from. I'm not convinced that like agency owners get into it to make loads of money and exit, right? There's usually a craft, there's usually potentially a co-founder or as a person, and they love doing the thing that they're doing, right? And I don't think that thing is growth and sales and business. And for very good reason, because if that's your thing and you're trying to craft these amazing experiences, you're probably not gonna do a very good job of it because you need to be a craftsperson, right? So therefore, 
having this outsourced model like a Fern Studios, I think is an interesting way for the individuals that started the business to really focus on what they do best. Now, you could use Fern or whatever you can use an outsourced agency or just think about it internally. But that means that like ensuring that the core competencies of the, the leaders in the organization, they stick to those things. And you want to get outside help to help you with those things that you're maybe not good at or you don't like doing. Or you outsource the function and, and that's potentially where something like a first studio comes into it, an outsourced growth model that you give out your copywriting or your inbound or your outbound to and they take care of it for you. So they would be the two two big yeah. ones, like the general hamster wheel and then specifically like sales, growth and kind of marketing. The same way you would hire a consultancy is the same way I would consider hiring team members because I was a practitioner, right? So I, like just to your point, started Avix because I was a freelancer. I was a designer. I was a developer. I had to learn all the different things, project management, accounting, all this stuff. And then slowly over time, focusing on what I'm good at and removing the things that I'm bad at and offloading certain things to the point where I don't really do anything on the delivery side. It's more so strategy, higher yep. level stuff, yep. sales, and even trying to get sales completely off my plate, yep. right? Focusing more on the bigger picture and just hiring people who are better at those things that you're not great at, which is insanely important to do with any business is to kind of offload those things so that you could do more because you, you could only spread yourself so thin. I think the hamster wheel thing really hits home, not only for agencies, but other types of businesses who solely rely on people power, right? Human capital. Now, the retain model is very interesting and, and something, I don't know if you have experience with this or if you did this as well, but we actually shifted our projects to being almost like retainers, mm -hmm. right? You can't force someone on a retainer, but you could break up the billing to do that, to make it more predictable, to be able to better plan resources. So if we took on a project that was over that we could deliver over the course of six months, we would just break billing into six months instead of like percentage payments tied to milestones, because it almost is like, okay, now we have a six month retainer and chances are they're going to move over to a management or support retainer after that. So we could then predict revenue a lot. But even with, I think like 50 plus percent of our business is now retainer, mm -hmm. which used to only be like five or 10%, even with that, I found it very difficult to add more business without having to add more people. <laughs> I think the only way to truly do that at an agency is to increase your rates or to not charge hourly, to basically be like, well, you have this need, right? You have this amount of services that you need. What is it worth to the merchant? What is it worth to the client and increasing your rates? Because the more work you take on, whether it's retainer or not, those resources still need to be there. Yep. Right? It's probably easier to plan when it's a retainer. It's easier to forecast and things like that. But I'm curious if you had any insights other than just increasing rates. <laughs> How can you increase the revenue without increasing the team? I think listeners would like to yeah. know that. And if you have a secret, I'm down. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. Okay. Here's the secret source. I don't have any secret source. No, I mean, increasing <laughs> rates is an interesting one because unfortunately, market dynamics will push back on you at some point, right? You can't just continually increase the rates because whatever the yeah. market rate is will be something that you need to consider. I think on rates though, just as a little aside, I think one strategy people often overlook is if you're not getting pushed back on the rate, I think it's too low. If you're getting pushed yeah. back, you're at the kind of ceiling. So that's maybe one piece of advice people can take on rates specifically. In terms of retainer and optimizing that, yeah, I think getting back to the hamster wheel, the concept does get challenging when the more business you take on, the more headcount, that retainer model, once it gets to a certain size, it's very hard not to dilute the experience. And when you dilute the experience, it's hard to drive value from it. Therefore, you get stuck in a retainer hamster wheel model as well. So I think ideally, what one might consider is a very, very, very disciplined, lean client base. And you only ever work mm. with, say, 12 brands per year. And then at the yearly mark, you do a very, very, very honest assessment with that portfolio and say, okay, are we the right fit for them? Are they the right fit for us? And you really, really drive as much value into those brands as, as you potentially can. So therefore, you're not necessarily having to increase the price but through another side note, 
commoditized and productized services, which is, I think, another key thing for any services business, yeah. you can really drive more margin. So you're not having to increase the rate, you're just driving more margin through each of those different clients. But I think it can only work when you've got a very lean client base, which means that you, know, you as the really senior strategic people can be really getting deep with those clients and really becoming a partner. I, I certainly found that we had a really big retainer program and it was one of the big bits, it was a huge part of the success. It was just this engine that ran in the background, right? You knew it was predictable income. It was amazing. However, like with most agencies, we, we suffered the hamster wheel concept. And I don't think the value was there on a client by client basis. And so therefore, we needed to bring more clients into the program to facilitate the headcount, et cetera, et cetera. If maybe we'd kept it a little bit leaner and driven more value, I think we would have gotten closer to the clients. And in getting closer, you get closer to their decision maker. You really become that kind of like partner extension of their team. And I think at scale, that is hard to do. And I appreciate that <laughs> if one is trying to sell a services business, this is kind of at odds with that. However, I think if you were to take a different perspective and look at the EBITDA, it's going to be higher. So there's probably some sort of balance between it not being this small specialist consultancy versus a big scaled agency that a potential acquirer would look at if that is an exit opportunity that you know you're considering. Yeah, for sure. And and this could go for any business as well. Kind of have to make that decision. Do you want to grow into a big company? Do you want to be a big agency? Maybe you want to grow big enough to be acquired. Maybe there's a certain number in mind. Setting those goals, because if you're going to say, well, we're going to only take on X amount of clients, and then the decision then becomes yours whether you want to take on more clients and hire more people. I've also found that after a certain size, say it's maybe 20 or 30 people, you start to have to hire more non-billables. Mm which plays a huge role in that. So, you know, over the past couple of years, we hired a director of operations, yep. director of client services, more account managers, HR, head of delivery, director of retention, things like that, which, yeah, they do work. They help deliver for our clients. There's value there, but it's not billable time. It's if we basically remove that resource or remove that team member, it's not like work couldn't get delivered. But things would eventually fall apart because our processes, our systems, our business is run by this leadership team, but they're not directly there to deliver. So there's not like a salary revenue matchup, yep. right? So I felt like that was, so especially when, you're looking at agencies that are maybe like five, 10, 15 people, you'll see like we were seeing like 40%, you know, EBITDA or like 50%, like high yeah. profits. But once you start to hire these non-billables, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's when it goes down to like, okay, well now that's where they're saying 20 or 30% is more realistic. And I imagine as you get bigger and bigger, yeah, the revenue goes up more and more, but that that the EBITDA goes down a lot more the bigger you get. Potentially, um, I think you, you and you know you, you might be experiencing it. I think there's a bit of a, an EBITDA slump. So smaller teams are not as expensive, so therefore your margins are higher. You bring in the heavy hitters; they cost more, but ultimately they should they should free you up. And then I yeah. think it'll probably dip the EBITDA and then you should see that start to, to, to pick back up because if the well-oiled machine is running. But I think mm -hmm. a key potential challenge with that kind of management structure is finding the balance between promotion and hiring in. And, and, and I, I don't know what the answer is because I think promotion is great, but you can run into challenges where you're promoting people based on their kind of like desire to be managerial versus their actual yes. ability to do it. Equally, bringing in heavy hitters who have got the managerial experience, potentially from bigger agencies, like really big WPP type agencies. Yeah. But in either case, I find you just really need to set those expectations. So if you've got like good expectation frameworks, HR frameworks, if you can take a lot of the HR hardcore stuff away from those people and let them thrive and build up their teams and build rapport with their teams and then do a bit of the doing because they're going to be need to be billable then that's a relatively good like foundation for success another key point about those management people though that i don't know how you equate you probably the margin isn't where you want to be thinking but more on the revenue side they do sell more business because clients like the fact you've got a management layer so you know there's going to be some benefit to them on the revenue side because client will see them, they'll trust them, 
the fact that you've got a management layer and, and they're probably going to be on the tools a bit more than what you are. So the clients are buying into those people being somewhat involved in their project, which that, that's a yeah. really big thing. Yeah, we've absolutely closed the larger deals, like the enterprise level brands, because we had those people in the room. Like if I would just show up with a designer and a project manager and say, hey, yeah, let's <laughs> buy from us. Oh, how big is your team? They, they need to know that there's a, especially those larger brands, that there's a risk reduction yep. there and also like a point of escalation. Yep. So if I have a problem with the project manager, I want to be able to go to account manager. If I have a problem with account manager, I want to go to director of client yep. services. If I can't speak director of client services, I want to go to CEO. Like it can't just have like a one-stop thing because it just, it's not going to come off professional. So like you kind of need that leadership or managerial team to be able to make that jump from that small boutique agency to a larger boutique agency or a larger company. It adds a ton of value. Totally. Part of me misses the days of like, Oh, this is what our EVO was. This is what our yep. profit was. And then like you look down the road, it's like, well, we're doing more in revenue, but less in profit. Yep. But then it, it does pick back up. So after, I would say after you make some of those hires, like one or two or three hires, it does take a good year, 18 months or so to flush itself out and be like, okay, well now our processes or systems are more optimized. We're closing more business, closing bigger deals. And one of the biggest things that I could advise smaller companies, smaller agencies to do is charge more. I know we said that that's difficult as you start into scale, but I think a lot of younger or like newer agencies or some that might be stuck at that like 8, 10, 12, 15, 20 team member mark. One of the biggest things I'll discuss, I'll ask them how much are you charging for this type of project? And they're literally charging maybe three to five times less than what we would be mm. charging. And they would ask me, how do you charge so much for this service? And I don't think we're charging an unfair price. We're coming with a larger team. We're delivering really great work. We have a great track record. We could show results. I simply said, oh, I just started charging more. That was it. Like, I think that there's a lot of agencies that undervalue their work, especially smaller agencies, because maybe they still have that mindset of a freelancer. We have to win this totally. deal. We have to be competitive. Yep. But that actually hurts the whole industry because it sets a baseline for like, you hear clients say, well, I could get this done for X amount. And I'm like, well, fine, go do it for that <laughs> amount, but you're going to run into some problems. Yep. You're not going to get that level of support. So one of the that bits of advice, especially for like smaller agencies, is simply just you need to increase your rates. You need to increase your pricing incrementally. You can't just bombard clients with it overnight. But I remember one of the first times we just started to charge for six, six figures for a project. And I was like, are we really going to try to charge this? And we won it. And then it was like, okay, this is the yeah. new normal. Yeah. Now we need to do this again and again totally. and again. And that really helped. That threw gasoline on the fire. And you just have to kind of just kind of do it and try not to worry about it too much. But of course, you have to back it up. You have to totally. sell on the value. Yeah, the value is going to be there. Yeah. If, if you're just charging more yeah. and you don't necessarily need to totally change your process, but the value needs to be there. And we went through similar yeah. things, man. I remember like when we sold our first like 35,000 pound deal, we were like, fuck, this is crazy. And then we sold like a 50,000 pound deal. And then it went up to 100, it was like, holy shit. And it was a very similar unscientific process. We were pretty confident yeah. that the value was there. So we just put the prices up. One thing I think in, in retrospect we could have done better, particularly on the retainer side, is expectation of setting prices higher. So having that open conversation with a client, I think one thing that can really hurt agencies is grandfathering prices in, right? Because if you've got that client for a very, very long time, which is ultimately what you want, but they're paying your rate from five years ago, that could be really challenging. And I just don't think it can, it can be a somewhat unhealthy relationship. And it's really hard to get clients onto the kind of new rate. So I think getting back to some advice for agencies that are growing, setting the expectation that every year the rates are reviewed and potentially increased, I think is a good spot to be in with, with those retainer clients. Yeah. And retainer clients are definitely changed our business growing that. Also, kind of stepping away from just delivering services and more so delivering results mm -hmm. like certain conversion rate optimization programs or 
email marketing, things that are going to generate revenue rather than just saying, oh, we're going to be a dev shop or a design shop or strictly just execution. Bringing that strategy layer there definitely changes the conversation because now you could sell on value, which is where the price increases could come in because you're not directly relating it to hours out money yep. in, you know, like once you kind of remove as an agency, and I'm sure you guys had to do this as well. I don't know if you sold on hours or whatever, but hours always come into play. You need to be able to calculate profits and resources, and things like that with hours. But we try never to sell hours to clients. Sometimes it's just easier, especially with retainers, but try to sell it more as like value. Like, is this delivering enough value? Like, are we providing the services that you asked for? And then some, are we saying that we're going to help actually see a return on investment? If so, and this is within your budget and you're going to see a return on investment, that's where it becomes more profitable too. Just because you put in less hours doesn't mean that you should be charging less for it. And I think that's what changed a lot in the industry. I feel like hours will always be a part of an agency model, but more and more agencies are kind of distancing themselves from hours. Have you experienced that? Is that something that you see or is hours still the gold standard? <laughs> it's a good question. I would say we were never very good with the return on investment piece. We always talked about it. I think we were a little bit worried. I don't think we backed ourselves enough. And I know that's slightly contradictory to what I said about us increasing the price. I think the value was there, but it was more like this holistic value. Like you were talking about before, we had a big mm -hmm. team, we delivered great work, but it, when it like boiled down to like a case by case basis or a feature rollout by feature rollout, I think we were a little bit worried about sort of putting our neck out there and saying, well, we think it's going to drive X, Y, Z. And it, there were some good reasons for that. One, because we're ultimately responsible for once a customer was on their site, we weren't driving any traffic to it. It is a little bit hard to calculate it, right? So like our sort of like conversion stats, I think we were not as thoughtful about the way in which we communicated them as we could have been. So we would pull out these amazing stats, but it wouldn't take a genius to sort of pick through them and even to, to some degree and realize like, did, did you guys, yeah, 10,000% yeah. <laughs> conversion rate increase, you know, over Christmas. Is that, is that you guys, right? I just spoke about <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. I just, I literally just wrote an article, a short article on LinkedIn called like case studies, blessing and yeah. a curse, because I think they're great. And we love to throw out the numbers, but there's so many different people that played a role in totally. that. And it's almost impossible to pinpoint what, you know, yeah, we built this piece of functionality or yeah, we redesigned the experience, but like the client, 90% of that needs to go to the merchant and what they're doing. And I think SaaS companies are guilty of it as well. So it is, I hear you, it's hard. I think more and more merchants see through that. And they're like, oh, wow, you saw this big increase. That's great. It just kind of validates that you're doing good work. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to see those results. Totally. So yeah, case I, I totally agree. I think, and that article you wrote, I thought was really, really excellent because it really highlighted the idea that like, one might need to rethink the way case studies are done. They're, they're very cookie cutter mm -hmm. and they just kind of yes. roll them out. But getting back to your original question about like hours, it's really interesting. I'm curious what you guys did because I like the idea of like packaging it up and it being commoditized. So you don't necessarily buy hours, you buy a piece of work, right? So we're going to deliver X and then there's obviously a time element to it, but we think the ROI is going to be Z, therefore this is what it equals. Is that how you kind of package it up to the clients? Is it more like a an outcome-based kind of concept? I wouldn't say it's outcome-based where like we're guaranteeing them a certain performance. So there's two different aspects. There's two different ways, right? We have our retainers. We try to keep that department almost completely separate. And then we have our projects. Mm -hmm. So we look at those two things very differently. So if we're talking about projects, we always do that as a project base, but we don't give them a set cost. We give them a range based off of like what we feel is going to go into this. Yep. And we, I would say 98% of the time we're selling them on a discovery, yep. right? Because the final cost estimate is within the client's budget. Then everything else shouldn't matter. They know we could deliver on it. We just need to work together to figure out what that end result is and what is most important for that initial launch. So we'll do that in our discovery process, which is pretty extensive. It's really not like we used to do like these quick, like one or two week, like discovery scoping processes, but like the newer ones that we're doing are far more in depth. They're like six weeks long, yep. some of them. Yep. 
but it includes a lot and it does deliver a ton of value. Mm -hmm. So we've only had maybe like one or two merchants that didn't move forward with the full project and stopped it at discovery, but they were still happy with the result, right? It just, at the end of that, it was like, it was more of a budgetary thing or a timeline thing. And uh, that was good because it, we used the discovery process to align more on what the end result is. In some, two of those cases, they rethought what their approach was. So if we would rewind and just say, hey, if we would have scoped this out and gave them hours or a number at the start, halfway through, they may have regretted that investment or regretted the decision to go down this path, whether it's with us or with the type of project that they needed to do. So they both walked away with a valuable like kind of strategy. So we look at it more like that. And then when we price things out, it's loosely based off of the amount of hours that we're going to put into it. But it's more so based off of like, well, how much value is this delivering for the merchant? How much are they going to see a return on investment? Is this a big thing for them? Are they willing to pay more to have a great team that they vibe well with and that can deliver on this? So we try to remove hours from it completely yep. and think more about it as like, can anyone do this as best as we can? Especially after our discovery process, when we know the ins and outs and the nuances yep. of their business. And then we kind of remove money from the conversation. And then it's more so like, all right, well, we have our discovery. We know there's not going to be as many change requests. So we're thinking of it more like, we're thinking of it less from an hour perspective, more from an investment perspective, yep. which change the language that we use. Yep. When it comes to the retainer side of things, that we could speak more to performance because we're doing a lot yeah, of yeah, conversion totally. optimization. Yeah. And you're more so, in control of it, right? The thing's live, you've got more data and feedback, yes. right? To project scenarios, just exactly. weird petri dish of <laughs> challenges and we've no yeah projects are tough to, to do that <laughs> with but with cro we've actually even in some cases where we're very confident that we know we could show the return on investment we'll have a guarantee and if we don't deliver on it there's a refund component to oh, it okay interesting. so it is loosely performance yeah okay which is like in those situations, we have to have high, extremely high confidence that we can yep. show them a return on investment. But what's good about that is that it limits risk on the client side. It yep. makes them feel more comfortable. Yeah, totally. Meaning like- Yeah, you got skin in the game. Look, they're not yeah, going to yeah, yeah. get the full payment. So I like playing around with those services, playing around with how we're doing things. But at the same time, to your po earlier point, I do think productizing as much as you possibly can is important. Totally. It's very important. Totally. Not reinventing the wheel. And I think that, yeah. I, I don't know what your, your experience has been, but so, so my, my services at Fern Studios, I'm trying to productize them as, as much as I can. But my sense yeah. is that sort of for, for high-end consultancy services, and I'd like to put mine in there, and I definitely think yours are in there. There is this kind of balance though between it being too productized. I think clients mm -hmm. don't like that. I mean, the fact that you talk about them as productized services, I don't think they want to hear that because it sounds very cookie cutter. But I think if you explain it that ideally for them, it's a better service for you. You not reinventing the wheel every single time is good for them. It's going to make the costs leaner, right? But I do believe there's a veneer of like tailoring that kind of needs to happen to some degree because each each business is different, each client is different. So I think there's that interesting balance in high-end services of like product ties with a veneer of like customizability that kind of sits on yes. top. And that's kind of like a cool spot to be in. On the retainer side, I definitely think it needs to be more productized, right? You have a process, you go through totally. this and yeah, certain things could be cut out depending on the client or depending on the service, yep. but most of that is practiced. When it comes to the project side, it almost always has to be heavily more custom, but like, that's where I, I think like doing a discovery process could be productized, whereas the delivery totally. is not. Yep. But at that point, your team is involved and you're being compensated for that. So I do think that like, if you're going to be customizing the service offering. And if you're going to be customizing something for a client, there should be some sort of premium price tag with that. And that might be the discovery yep. that might be paying more for this customized approach to the delivery. And that could even go on the retainer side too. So there needs to be somewhat of a balance. I, I don't think that there might be some agencies that can completely productize things, but I'm sure that they're also doing some things custom or creating some sort of custom offering, especially for the larger clients that come in. Totally. You know, where you're going to say you need to win it and you're just going to say yes yeah, to everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that the product, the pure productized services models are definitely applicable, but they are built for service models that are 
looking for serious scale. So like educational yeah. service models where you productize mm -hmm. this course and you send it out a zillion times, that sort of thing. That, that makes a lot of sense. And then I suppose like within a services model, which is interesting is you look at the product educational pieces, potentially your growth lever. So you don't charge for it, but it's a demand and lead gen concept that then leads into yeah. the customized service, which is far more expensive or, or whatever. So yeah, there's loads of interesting levers one can pull, but I, I agree productization is it's key for a services business model to some degree. Yeah, it definitely helps you sell and market more and allocate resources and train yep. for when it comes to sales, whether it's productized or custom, what's your kind of philosophy around agency sales? I know that you kind of, you led the sales team at We Make Websites, yep, right? Yep, I was at the coalface. I was the salesperson number one. So it's interesting. I've done a lot of like, obviously experience on the ground at We Make, but then a lot of reading and theory. And I think it's a weird world <laughs> because I think there's a lot of B2B sales theory and concepts out there. And then there's like, agency relationship selling and they do seem to sit in these kind of separate camps but i think one can learn a lot from each other so i i think a sort of interesting mm -hmm. mix of thinking about b2b because that's ultimately what an agency is you're selling services to another company but a real heavy interest and sort of lens on the relationship element to it so i think agency relationship selling is all about like, let's be honest, trust, quality of work, authenticity. Are you a, a decent person who's not going to fuck the clients? So, do you know what I mean? All this kind of like basic stuff, which I mean, one could argue yeah. should be all B2B selling, but whatever, maybe that is as much. But <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the kind of core of it. And then on top of that, if you can add in things like, obviously a niche, I think is a real like bit of a game changer, you know, like, cause if you're a niche, that's not, doesn't just help your selling component that helps your growth component. It helps the commoditization that we talked about, right? If you've got one thing that you do and you do it incredibly well, you will just get better and better and better at it. And everything, your, your entire world evolves around that. And I, I do think that uh, we make, that was a key decision that happened. I think it was like 2008, 2009 to go Shopify only. Like it was just it was just so easy. I remember when I joined, everything was just Shopify. It was very easy just to only talk about Shopify. So, you know, the core foundations of the agency relationship model are trust and then building on top of that. And if you can have a niche, that, another layer that can like really, really accelerate things. And then I think some of the other things are within the niche is trying to figure out your positioning within that. Like, who are you trying to to, to market towards? So with we make we, we made the call... We did a rebrand, I think it was 2018. I remember it was myself, Faye, who was the growth manager at the time, Piers and Alex, who were the co-founders. We like we like hired a room somewhere in London and we did like big strategy session and we were trying to figure out like the new branding and the new positioning. And we went over and over and over. I remember we had some tagline there. We were like, e-commerce is complex, we make it simple. And then we were like, but no, e-commerce is complex. It's always fucking complex. <laughs> no one can make it simple, it doesn't exist. And then I remember looking at our like client base and every, I think it was nine, 93 or 95% of them were international brands. And it kind of dawned on us like, why don't we be the Shopify Plus agency for international brands? It wasn't super sexy, wasn't lighting the creative and branding world on fire, but it stuck. And it was like, it, it, it just worked. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think another key component to agency selling is setting them up for success. So setting them up for success with a niche and setting them up for success with a clearly defined current client profile, ideally future client profile, I think are some key foundations that make it a much easier process. Yeah. And that's having a niche that's also doesn't have a ceiling. Because when you say for international brands, it's either brands that are already international, brands that want to expand their in internationalization, or brands that aren't international yet and want to be international. So it's not like you're saying, hey, we're just working with CPG yep. brands or just fashion yep. brands. We used to say that a lot too, like we work with premium products, fashion brands. We try to say lifestyle yep. brands now too, to kind of make it a little bit more encompassing. That's a very hard thing to do is to have a niche, especially in the Shopify space where a few years ago, it was very niche to only do Shopify. Now it's like there's so many Shopify totally. agencies that it's not very niche anymore to just be focused on one platform, right? That's a, a very difficult thing. And when it comes to sales, I definitely feel the easiest sales on our end 
didn't even involve complex proposals. It wasn't like we had to pitch this whole big thing. One of the easiest and our longest clients that we have, it was one phone call. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the phone call, they asked for an SOW. Sent them an SOW. We ended up doing a discovery, a complete rebuild on Shopify Plus, and then post-launch managed services and CRO. And that was two years yep. ago, and they're still a client, yep. right? And then there's other ones where we did real complex, big proposals, and they just didn't go over <laughs> well. So it's more about that relationship. And like you said, the trust, gaining trust. Are you a professional? And can you deliver? Yeah. Like, is this the team that could deliver for us? Are you the professional? And then is the cost right? Yeah. Are they bringing value? Is the cost right? And do I like working and talking with this person? Everything else kind of doesn't matter. You do need the proposal sometimes, especially for those bigger brands with RFPs and all that, of course. which sucks. <laughs> but I, I, I do agree with you that the relationship side, so much easier when you build trust with the person that you speak with. And which is very difficult now to get your foot in the door with that because especially on like something like LinkedIn, like. There's so much spam, oh, sales. Dude. Everyone's trying to get the ear yeah. of everyone. <laughs> and it's like, unless you see them at an event or they see you at a webinar, or you have a call with them or they're on a podcast, it's very hard to be like, hey, I like this person. This person's cool. Totally. I'm going to give them five minutes of my time or I'm going to go to them with some of my business, even though that they're a stranger, but I kind of trust them now. Very hard to do that. Can you tell me a little bit about sales as you know, it maybe through We Make Websites or in general, what was your process for getting in front of some of these brands? Did they just all come to you? Were you able to find them? Did you do any outreach? What's your kind of sales process like? So my, my general theory for high-end services is, and this might be slightly controversial, I, I'm not convinced that standard outbound tactics can work. I think strategic outbound can work, but I, I think it really needs to be underpinned by a pretty heavy inbound content strategy. So we make, we were a inbound content machine way before I joined. I mean, Alex may have talked about it when you chatted with him the other day, but he was a big proponent of inbound content for services businesses way before it was even a thing. So we had this incredible yeah. momentum that when I joined, you Googled Shopify London, we would rank above Shopify. So we, we had this kind of inbound content machine built into the system, which was huge. So that's one thing. So inbound content, however, it's expensive <laughs> and it takes a fucking long time to, to come to fruition, right? So I think if one is starting out today, I think they need to have it in the arsenal, but they can't expect results from it like in yep. a month or two months. It's it's a long-term play. 100%. Now, so you've got your, your inbound content machine working. Now, I do think that that's interesting and there's some podcasts, visual content, just sticking up a blog and hoping that people will kind of find it. I don't think it's going to get to move the needle completely, but that general kind of like, inbound content play is, is, is a big part of it. Strategic outbound, I think can work. I think it needs to ha be happening sort of quite far down the sort of like growth funnel. We tried some stuff where <laughs> we would like pay somebody to scrape sites and get emails and try and blast them and see if they wanted a website. Never worked, <laughs> just never ever worked. We did that too. Yeah, everyone's done it. I personally, I think at WeMake, I did maybe four or five outbound, like personal outbound, whatever, initiatives in my entire six years. And that was usually someone would ping me, head of growth face and say, oh, I heard so-and-so is looking for a new agency. Why don't you reach out to them? I'd reach out to them. Didn't really know what I was doing. My success rate was about 20%. Right. But I do believe that there are some really interesting people, outsourced agencies, and then people that are doing it within the agencies, like creative, strategic outbound, I think is definitely a thing, but it's further down that funnel. So then the other big part to it, which the services business relies on is partnerships, right? And referrals. Like that's the other kind of key driver, I think, in your kind of growth engine and your partnerships, I think is is interesting because it follows the entire growth cycle of a brand from the initial brand experience. I mean, this is an agency's growth funnel, but the, the initial experience that the brand experiences of the agency through your consideration and interest stages down into your kind of like inquiry like component of your growth and sales funnel, your partners can work across all of those. You can do big top of funnel stuff where you're at an expo with them and they can get involved in the stand and you can get involved in the stand. Then the kind of middle funnel stuff, you can be doing white papers with them. You can be doing kind of like 
slightly more intimate events or like your sort of more boutique events and then right down in your kind of like bottom of funnel activity you can be doing hyper targeted round table dinners with your partners and potential clients that they're bringing to the table as well so strategic outbound content led inbound and partnerships i think are the three key components to to any agency growth strategy yeah i agree especially with the content side i agree with everything you just said and it kind of validates some of my suspicions. Content, I mean, I think that goes across for all businesses. Like the content marketing initiatives that we took and continue to take definitely drive the most amount of leads in business. So before I was even considering starting an agency when I was just a freelancer, I basically was in a battle with every freelancer in New York. There was like three or four freelancers when you Googled freelance web designer in New York. And I made it my goal to demolish them. And I studied up on SEO and I would push the Yoast plugin on WordPress to its limits. And I was writing content and keywords. And it took months, but I eventually got to the top of Google for freelance web designer in New York and started to build authority, started to write blog posts. One of the best performing pages on our website still to this day is an article I wrote in 2012. (laughs) It's generated hundreds of thousands or millions of views for us over the past 10 years, right? I wrote it, but it was building domain authority for the website. Fast forward years later, I was still putting articles out there. Sometimes I would write themselves. Sometimes I would pay somebody, but they were SEO friendly posts. And by the time we started the agency, we had kind of this machine of content going out, good search results and focusing on SEO. So organic search has been one of the biggest drivers, because you Google e-commerce web design agency or Shopify plus agency, same thing with you guys, we're coming up above Shopify in some of those situations, even still to this day. And content is a big part of that. So now we have a much bigger team doing it, putting out videos, putting out case studies, putting out articles. It's easier to rank for those once you build that domain authority. But I will say it does take years to be able to do that. Like, Our domain authority is like 40, 50, something like that. And like some of the other newer agencies that we compete with sometimes, you could track their domain authority. They're like a five or a 10 or a 20 or something like that. And it's going to take years before they could catch up. As long as you're putting up really quality, good content and you lift that domain authority up, you'll always rank above someone else as long as you're putting out better content. So I think content marketing is key. I think that's for any B2B sales funnel. I mean, it goes beyond, uh, I mean, super important. B, B, B2B, obviously direct to consumer, that's a huge part of it, right? Like th- their content plays are potentially more important than, than the B2B space. But I, I totally yeah. agree. And I think what's interesting is that it feels like the B2B, all of the, the, the tech and app partners that, that we work with, they've definitely really upped their content game and branding game, which yes. I think is really, really interesting. So yeah, obviously that makes it slightly more challenging. But I think from an agency perspective, it's a good thing because therefore there's more agency content writing talent around, which is a very hard thing to hire for. I mean, even outsourcing mm-hmm. it can, can be really challenging, but like I think... The fact that the game has been upped across the board means that there's there's better content writers across the board, which is kind of handy for everyone. Yeah, and a lot of times we'll get hit with the question about, hey, how do we get to the top of Google for X? How do we get to the top of Google for search, certain search terms by our clients? And we'll talk about creating content. We'll talk about if you're some sort of fashion brand or something, how can you create like a style guide that you update weekly or monthly or fashion advice? And they won't do it because it doesn't have that immediate effect of running an ad. And same thing on the agency side, we want to be able to do cold outreach. I want cold outreach to work. We've tried it a million times. It doesn't really work. I am very interested in Mm account-based marketing though. Like instead of saying, hey, we're going to go after this vertical of this certain criteria, identifying 150 or whatever it is, brands that you feel are your ideal client base and market directly to them. Totally. That means ads, that means content, that means writing for those brands specifically, and even calling them out in certain situations, whether it's a best of list, whatever it is to get their attention and that they start seeing your content. This is a longer term play though too, so that when they are ready to make that decision or when they do see content that you're putting out there or an ad, they're more likely to click on it or go and you stay top of mind. But I agree with you that cold outreach doesn't really work. It can. But it's more of those things where it's like, you're going to have to put a lot of effort into it. Like if you hit up 
500 people and you you get one or two deals out of it maybe yep. you know three deals out of it but it's a lot of work totally. and it's you could tarnish your name too because then you become some sort of agency that's spamming exactly yeah <laughs> we got blacklisted many many a time but the, the, the reason <laughs> i think that that and that's really interesting what you talk about there the account-based marketing and i suppose there's an interesting like place for exploration is that strategic inbound outbound kind of intersection and content being maybe one of the drivers but i think the reason sort of more traditional outbound tactics don't work for agencies is either a replatform so a big project or they're already on the platform that you work with and that you, you develop and design on but they're moving agencies or they're moving away from wherever it is that they are that's a very long arduous protracted process so i think trying to hit them at that very point with that exact outbound email or whatever it is or touch point it's just really hard so i, I think that consistent really good content, the account-based concept that you kind of talk about. I think that's a really novel way to, to, to really generate some interesting demand gen on an agency from an agency perspective, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like the content part of it and the account-based marketing part of it. I wish cold would work. I wish cold outreach would work, but it's, uh, it's, a you know, it's so easy to just be like, yeah, we're going to send out some emails. And I, the first time, I'm sure you guys thought this way too, but like the first time I did it, I was just like, we have all this this list and we're going to send yeah. out all these emails and a whole crap load of business is going to come yeah. in and we'll be able to do this every quarter or every yeah. month. And it was just like, it was a little misleading because the first time I did it, we scraped a list just like you, sent out cold outreach and I closed two deals off of that first. And it was just luck, yeah. two deals. One of them was actually a really good, brand that we worked with but like two deals and i was like oh this yeah, is it this we works. crack the code <laughs> it works and then it just never happened again never we even hired a company to do it for us to write the emails and he had killer emails we would get all these responses we'd book these calls but they're cold they're not ready to totally. buy totally they're not ready to buy and it's not an easy sale they want you to pitch them win them over it's different when someone reaches out to you in b2b they're warm totally they're ready to buy ready. and you just have to listen hear them out and then scope it yeah. it's it's so much easier so yeah that's one thing that i think agencies likely will need your help with <laughs> and some advice there yeah. All right, Tim. Anything else you wanted to cover? But I think we we got a, a, a we covered a good bit in this hour. I don't think so, man. I've really enjoyed this session. It's been insightful, cathartic, and hopefully useful to the audience. So yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I took away a few things from it. Good. So I'm gonna go tell my salespeople to cancel that cold outreach <laughs> you're about to <laughs> nice go send out. Nice. So we'll save some people's inboxes. Yeah, good. Yeah, we got to do this again, man. Thank you so much, and uh, really appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks, mate. It was a pleasure. See you soon.